Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 287 of the Fun With Cars, Formula One, and other motorsports podcast, or episode 21 of 2021. I'm Robin Warner, and today is a very special episode, as I recently had the chance to speak with Formula One driver, endurance racer, and rally ace, Vic Elford, or Quick Vic, as he is known to many. Vic shared so many wonderful stories, how he got into motor racing, the way he ended up in Formula One, and many others. It's absolutely fascinating, and, as a result, worth an entire podcast episode. So this entire episode is my conversation with Vic Elford. Please excuse the inconsistent audio quality. Furthermore, at about 35 minutes in, I incorrectly called the Netflix show Drive to Survive Beyond the Grid, which is the F1 podcast. I apologize for that error. Regardless, I do very much hope you enjoy my conversation with Vic Elford. Vic Elford, uh, racing legend and uh, quick Vic, as he is commonly known. I hope that you are okay with that. Uh, it's a huge pleasure to speak with you. Thank you for taking the time. Well, thank you very much for calling. Quick, the quick Vic actually sort of gets around. Even my my hospital doctors and nurses started calling me that. I'll say they found out about it. So it's okay. <laughs> Do you challenge people to races in the hospital and win? And that's how you kept that oh, reputation no. going? No, 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 no. In fact, on the contrary, I try to remain anonymous uh, when I'm in the hospital or any other public place for that matter. I, you know, I don't like standing out and being pointed out. I never really liked being a a so-called celebrity anyway. And so when I'm in the hospital or, or you know, any other sort of public areas, I, I always try and, and sort of stay in the background and out of it. But, but at one point, I was, you know, I was obliged to put down my, my uh, profession. And I mean, I can't invent it. I had uh, put down racing driver for many years. And so somebody took it up and went and looked it up online, and it started from there. <laughs> well, I think it's hard to stay anonymous when you've had such a wonderful racing history as a race car driver. I, I myself could put down race car driver on my resume, and that would not make me quick Robin, I assure you. Um, <laughs> what... What was it like to have such a wonderful racing career that spanned Formula One, endurance racing, and rally cars? Well, it, 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 it was wonderful, as to use one single word. But when, when I started, you know, it, it, it all revolved really around around start and, and how things were. Uh, like what sixty, seventy years, sixty years ago. I, I was born in 1935, so just before the war. And then my mum and dad, they didn't have any money. They they used to run a little working man's cafe in London. That was their their life and their calling. And then my dad got called up and I went off to North Africa and Italy. So he was gone. Literally, we went off in 1939, and he was gone for the whole war. He never came back on leave. He was there the whole time until he came back out. Uh, and my mum carried on working and running uh, our little working man's cafe on her own, obviously with help here and there, but on her own all the way through the war. And 
and then continued with that afterwards because you know after the war there were there was not much business around there you wouldn't know because you're not old enough but but everything was i mean everything was destroyed you know, sure. there was just no, nothing nothing left and so there was no question of trying to do something else they just carried on with a little cafe for 20 years uh, which was all the, you know during my my growing up time and my younger brother as well all through that time so when it when it finally when i finally graduated and uh, uh in fact before then when i was 11 12 years old my dad had been an amateur racing cyclist before the war and he'd been quite good at it and he'd won quite a few things and so he was keen on racing in general uh, and at one point in 1949, we had the very first British Grand Prix uh, in England at Silverstone. wasn't a world champion, but it was actually the first race known as the British Grand Prix. Interesting. And, and he took me to see it. We had seats in the, what, the grandstand at Stowe Corner. And so I was like 11, 11 years old. And I remember seeing these cars come out of Abbey Curve and they come hurtling down the street, bright colours and lots of noise. And I said to myself, I'm going to do that. <laughs> uh, you know, in a little kid's dream, of course, there was no way in the world I was ever going to achieve that dream. But it lasted and then all the way through school and graduating and afterwards I got my first car and then one of my best friends at school his mother won not the, not the, the big stake but his mother mother won a small stake in the Irish sweepstake are you old enough to tell about the Irish sweepstake we yeah absolutely I'm I'm enjoying uh, this I'm enjoying this story okay and so um she bought him a car, uh, which was actually a Vauxhall Velox, and he didn't like that very much. So after a little while, he persuaded his parents he could change it, turn it in for an MGTS. And he was quite keen on, I mean, not mad like me, but he was quite keen on doing a little competition. So we started doing local club rallies, and he drove, of course, it was his car, and I was his navigator. Sure. And that went on just for a little while, and then there was a, a great uh, guy who had ambition further, much further than that, and financial ability to follow them, named David Siegel Morris. And suddenly he was looking for a navigator. He used to drive, at that time when I first drove, joined him, he drove a ball rider which was actually a very, very quick car. The only problem was it had only 13-inch wheels, mm. and it, it wouldn't it wouldn't stop. <laughs> but it was a very quick car, and eventually he got rid of that uh, and bought an MG Magnet, and we started driving into that. And then one of the rally guys from up north said, you know, David, that's not going to work. You need to get a Triumph TR3. So he bought a Triumph TR3A, and we went rallying with that. We did, we did the uh, 
Tulip Rally and one or two other things together. And we started being quite successful. And then at one, but then we went to British Motor Corporation, BMC, where we were driving minis. And what well, do I say we? I mean, he was the driver. <laughs> we were in minis and heelys. But all this time, I'd been watching and learning, and I was convincing myself I was better than most of the people driving the factory cars. And uh, I made, I really made no secret about this. And Mark Chambers, who was then the competitions manager at uh, BMC, we'd been to, we'd done the Alpine Rally in a, in a Healy, in a big Healy, and uh, we did Liège in a big Healy, and then we went to to um, Acropolis and uh, in a Mini. Wow. And while we while we were there, we we hit uh, a pretty large dog. Which fortunately didn't kill the cat and dog, but it more or less killed the mini. And so we went home with Well, that. minis were properly small, weren't they? <laughs> yes, they were. <laughs> and so we went back home with that. And then I guess a week or two later, and I, I went up to uh, Abingdon to BMC to see what was next. And, uh, and uh, Marcus Chambers said, well, Vic, I'm afraid for you there is no next time. And I said, why have I not been lovely? He said, you're very good, but I don't want co-drivers who want to be drivers. <laughs> Which, from his point of view, was perfectly logical. I had to agree with it. But prior to that, I'd already negotiated with him to buy an X-Works Mini and have it converted to go racing. And so I bought my X-Works Mini, which indeed was the same car we had driven in, in Greece. PMO 200 was its number. And uh, if you wonder how I remember that, I've got a photographic memory. Ha, well, it's a wonderful thing <laughs> to have. Absolutely. So I went racing with that. And in the meantime, not just did Marcus keep his, his word, but he got Don, what was his name? Don, da, da, da. Look it up. There were, at that time, you know, in the mini time, there was a, 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 a engine guy in England named Don. I can't remember the other. And he was an absolute mini wizard of getting power out of the old engine, the 850 engine, not the, not the Cooper engine. And so he, I got a Don, a Don Moore. Don Moore is his name. Okay. So Ma Mar Marcus bought me a Don Moore engine, put it in my car. And uh, I won my first race in it. And I carried on winning in it. And uh, then in the, in the meantime, out of the blue, DKW sent two cars to England, one to do autocross, you know, parking lot type events. Sure. With, with a driver named Ken, whose other name I don't remember, came from Harry, Harryford or Herefordshire. And out of the blue, for some reason, I have no idea why, when DKW said, we want the other car to go racing, he said, well, give it to Vic Elford. So they did. <laughs> and I had to, in theory, I had to pay for all the expenses and so on. But, but uh, DKW was then based at Slough, you know, just outside London. Well, that's still am amazing that the biggest expense in racing is, of course, the car itself. And if that part's Absolutely. covered, <laughs> that, that, that helps quite a lot. 
Absolutely, yeah. And the mechanics there got enthusiastic. They used to look after it for me. And then at one time in the middle of the year, I won two national rallies, won two weekends consecutive. Uh, I can't remember which ones they were now, but I won two national rallies. And on one of them, I had passed a, an Austin Healy uh, Sprite in a forest stage. And the Austrian Healy Sprite was being driven by none other than John Sprinzel, you know, who practically invented the Sprite. Sure. And he, his co-driver was Graham Robson, who was then the team manager, or, or yeah, the team manager at Triumph. And my pass sufficient to impress them so that uh, Ryan Robson immediately gave me a work drive for the following year, driving uh, TR4s. It went well. I didn't win anything, but I was often ahead of the Heelys. Uh, so, of course, you know, that didn't go unnoticed. And uh, it went on from there. And how, and it, it, and how fact, did you get... Oh, please, go on. No, you go first. I, I was just going to ask, and, and how did this these you, many, you know, historic and famous British makes, how did this lead you to being connected with Porsche? Aha. Logical question. <laughs> um, but just as a, 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 a pure matter of interest, um, so Triumph was always really the, the door opener for, I mean, lots of little got, got their foot in the door. Sure. And then Graham Rodson threw the door wide open, giving me actually a, a paying me a contract to drive work rally cars. By sheer chance, I didn't, I promise I didn't do this intensely. <laughs> By sheer chance, it just so happens I'm wearing a TR4 t-shirt this morning. <laughs> with, was... with my car, uh, you know, they were always, they were all blue. And their numbers were three, four, five, six, I think, VC. Mine was three VC. And believe it or not, the T-shirt I'm wearing is a TL4 with the number 3VC on its number plate. Oh, that's brilliant. I love it. <laughs> but then how did that go, come with Porter? Well, after, after Triumph, Ford came knocking. So I went to Ford and I had a three-year contract with Ford. Uh, ah, and you some, raced uh, some Ford Cortinas, yeah? Well, before racing, I was, I was rallying. I'm, well, I'm sorry. I apologize. I, I equivocated rallying and racing together. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Ford Cortinas, GTs, and then ultimately Cortina Lotus or Lotus Cortina. And uh, I had pretty fair success. I won some, but I could have won a lot more if Ford had been a little bit more efficient. On one occasion, for example, I won the Rally of the Flowers in Italy and then got disqualified because Ford had made a paperwork mistake on the paperwork of homologation. Jeez. Uh, that was just one. Yeah. But there, you know, there were a number of things like that. But by the end of the year, well, I had already won the Coupe des Alpes once. I was heading for another Coupe des Alpes victory in, I guess, the last... Uh, Coupe des Alpes, well, the last race of the year for me with Paul with Ford, and the car broke 20 miles from the finish Aye. Oh. when the when the rally was all over. That must and be not gutting. only I'd been, I'd, 
not only I've been winning the, the touring car category, I've been outclassing the GT cars as well. I've, I've been dusting up TRs and, and Porsches and, and those sort of things in a Lotus Cortina. Sure, sure. And uh, that didn't go unnoticed either. So at the end of it, I, I, I decided by the following year, I had to go somewhere else. Well, by then, I didn't live in France yet, but I was I spent a lot of time there. And as I said, I've got a photographic memory. So when it came, plus I liked, I loved France. I, I'm one of the only Englishmen who ever did, I suppose. But I, <laughs> I, I loved France and I loved the French. I, I have a hard time disliking any country whose food is so good, uh, personally. Well, that, that's a good start. Yeah, and these <laughs> girls are so pretty and so on. Uh, um, and so I loved France and the French. And I made it, unlike you know, most English you think, well, talk a bit louder and the natives will understand. I made a positive <laughs> effort to learn to speak French, which for me was not difficult because of my memory. Plus, uh, I discovered I have a natural language, a uh, natural ability for languages. And uh, so I rapidly learned to speak French without an accent. In fact, if I had an accent, it was a Marseille accent, not mm. an English one. Sure. And the end of the, uh, the the Alpine Rally where I, you know, should have won, but didn't. Uh, I, I, I was thinking about where do I go next year? I could go to Renault. I speak French. All the French drivers, I got on with all of them. I was the only English guy who ever did, I think. But I got on with all the French drivers, no doubt, because I could speak French. Um, and, well, uh, and I'm sure thought, they appreciated you enjoying their culture as well. I'm, I'm oh, sure that played a role. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, as far as they were concerned, I was the only English Frenchman who existed. <laughs> basically uh, and then my other thought of course was Porsche the 911 had just appeared and there was a young driver named Gunther Klass what was a K L-A-S-S who had been racing it in, Europe, in Germany and doing some rallies and he was doing quite well uh, unfortunately a couple of years later he died in an accident but he was doing quite well with the car um, but you know nothing special and after the rally in, in, we finished in Cannes and I went to uh, uh, I, I called von, von Einstein and I arranged a meeting so we had a wonderful lunch in front of the I can't remember whichever is the British Hotel in Cannes, um, around the pool. And I said, you know, uh, you, you see what's been happening with Ford. I think I'd like to drive a 911. And he said, well, Vicky, my boy. And I was always Vicky, my boy, one or the other, or both from that <laughs> moment, from that moment onward. We don't have a rally budget. And here, PX doesn't really want the 911 to go rallying. Could you believe this? Yeah, and um, knowing yeah, the history Pierre, now, it's it's hard sorry. to believe. Yeah, because PX's idea of the 911, I was told at that time, was it would become a gentleman's tour, grand touring car, not at all a racing car. Ah, no, so um, not even not even rally specifically, but no racing at all. Nothing, nothing at all. No, nope, yeah. that was not in their program. 
so Bush said, well, I'll tell you what, I'll lend you a car from a Corsica, which suited me because I'd already been to Corsica a couple of times. I love Corsica. I loved the tour of Corsica. And so I'd never driven a 911 in my life. I'd never, you know, I, well, I was just totally lost in the car. They delivered the car to me in, in Bastia, ready for the, the event. And uh, I drove it a few kilometres, I suppose, to get it to public, to uh, Park Valmay, and that was it. Hmm. And, then, and then I finished third overall <laughs> in, in the 911. So that went back to Germany, and suddenly in Germany, Porter was waking up Stuttgart, and, and then they said, well, you know, that was it. Well, you didn't expect that. Will you do Monte Carlo Rally for us? We can't. So I'll pay you, give you a contract, but we'll pay you, of course, for this time. I went to Corsica without being paid. All of my own expense, everything. Wow. And so I said, yeah, of course. So I did Monte Carlo, and the organisers came up with a, one of their odd regulations. At that time, the organisers all used to come up with regulations which were planned to make sure a French car won the event. <laughs> sure. And, and that year, they'd come up with a new one. We all had to carry four spare wheels on or in the car for the entire rally. Jeez. So, so when we were, you know, I used to start the Warsaw because I discovered that years before. And so I had a 911 with two car, two wheels under the hood, bonnet for you, and two wheels inside. Huh. And that was all the way to the start in, uh, in uh, where it really started in uh, Grenoble or Chambéry, you know, before the mountains. And so and we had, uh, and then I, I actually had two on the roof going down that way. But then once it really started, they were all in the car. And then, despite all that, uh, when we got to Monte Carlo, I was leading. <laughs> and then wow. we uh, in Monte Carlo. We were due to go out on Thursday night for the for the uh, you know the the last six hundred kilometres around the mountains of Monte Carlo, Turini, and so on. And uh, we had to choose our tyres by Wednesday lunchtime. And all the weather forecasts, all of them, everywhere in the world, said it can only get better in Monte Carlo. Warm, hot, sunny, nothing else. And then it snowed. <laughs> but, but I had already made my... We, it snowed while we were actually on the last night. But it started snowing just before I got to the Trini. So although I had some M&S MS tyres with studs in, that was it. I mean, I had no real snow tyres. And I dropped from first place to third place in what was little more than a standard 911. Wow. Just Beefed up a little bit, prepared in general for the rally. So suddenly the sky was the limit, and Porter said, "Well, still can't give you a contract, but you want to carry on." So I said, "Yeah, of course I want to carry on." So that year I won three more. I did win three rallies. I won the European Championship. They started me racing at the same time, and so by the end of the year, you know, everything was was great. And then the following year, I I stayed with Porsche. I stayed there six years. By yeah. this time, I was only, I was only by the following year, I was only racing. I did Monte Carlo again, but I was really only racing, and that was it. That, that was the start of the Porsche history.
And how did you enjoy racing, road racing um, versus rallying? Well, it's 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 strange because well, back in back in my triumph days with David Siegel Morris, at one point my first car was an Austin A thirty five. Uh, you know, a little tiny buzz machine. Standard, absolutely standard. Sure. The only thing that was special about it, when I bought it, it was grey, and I didn't like grey, so I painted it red. <laughs> <laughs> um, but then at one point, we went to a London London, a London motor club, hill climb, and we both drove both cars. I drove his TR3A, actually, no, TR4A, excuse me, and, and uh, TR4, no, TR3A. We both drive his TR3A, and we both drive, drove my little A35, and I beat him in both of them. So I started thinking, oh, I'll get serious about this, aren't I? And, 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 so, and it went on from there. But all the time, I had always envisioned myself as a rally, as a race driver. But then, of course, with Porter, I had the opportunity to go to, to Corsica, of course, with Ford before I'd already finished third in Corsica with Porter, with Ford, and I'd won other things with Ford. So I thought, well, I'm a rally driver, but I don't feel like a rally driver. I feel like an everything driver. <laughs> and so I, and I was, I, you know, I drove races. And I felt like a racing driver. I did racing driver things. I didn't do silly rally driver things, which most rally drivers did do when they went racing. I went hill climbing, and I could blow the the weeds off almost anybody on a hill climb in a similar car. And that was just it. And it didn't matter what car it was. You know, whether I was driving a Ford PT Cortina or ultimately a Formula One car, or a 917. I drove everything the way it should be driven in that particular event. How that happened, why I had that gift, I have no idea. Because huh. it sure it was a gift. I don't. I didn't make any effort. It just happened. I I'm sure there is a some very important uh, race driving skills that you learned at your mom and dad's coffee shop. We just have to. Narrow down. Maybe it was the way you washed the dishes that uh, gave you the needed skills. There, there must be something. <laughs> there must be something. <laughs> but, but I have no idea what it was. Well, let's let's jump into the pinnacle of motorsport, as many call it, Formula One. You raced. Yep. You raced in a very, a very glorified era of the sport, but also an extremely dangerous era of the sport. What was it like? Racing Formula One—that was that was the dawn of aerodynamics, and that was right in the middle of the of the worst death rate in the sport. Well, the death rate didn't bother me. I thought, well, you know, people make mistakes. I'm not going to make mistakes. <laughs> <laughs> that's a, that's an easy enough plan, I suppose. <laughs> yeah, I, I, and I'm sure I'm not the only one. I mean, we must all have thought that way, sort of push it to one side. But then my first—I uh, mean, you. You need to understand my first race in a Formula One car. I'd been on it to Don Cooper and uh, Tim Parnell at BRM to let me test a Formula One car. And I mean, I, you know, there, there was no secret. We all knew each other quite well. And they kept saying, yeah, but you're a rally driver. And I kept saying, yeah, but I know I can drive a race car. 
And eventually one day, Tim Parnell called me and said, look, I'm going to be testing uh, the new little VRM at, at Silverstone. No race from this specially, but come up anyway. We'd like to see how you go, you know, and, and, and keep it on record for the future. So I went to Silverstone and I had a fairly successful test test in the VRM. And then they happened to be parked on the on the asphalt then, I mean, there were no garages like they are today, next to Cooper. And John Cooper, you know, knowing all about my phone calls and whatever, said, well, okay, you're here, you might as well drive it, get in. <laughs> uh, you never knew John Cooper, of course, but that, I mean, you couldn't imagine anybody more blunt than him. <laughs> so I got in. And, and this guy, he was one of the first who had been working on it, and he kept on insisting on it, anti-dive front suspension. Ah, okay, yeah, yeah. Which you, you've probably never heard of. Um, oh, I, I've heard of I, it, certainly, yeah. Yeah, well, well it didn't work. <laughs> <laughs> that car had anti-dive front suspension. The idea being that, you know, it would just keep it on a level plane all the time. Yes. The only trouble was, of course, when you put the brakes on, the front didn't dive, so it didn't get any more grip on the front wheels to help you stop and, more important, turn into a corner. Sure. And then when you accelerated, it all went to the back, so you couldn't steer the damn thing. <laughs> <laughs> so I drove it, and uh, I, I did a, a pretty successful test, and then John Coop said, what do, you, what do you think of it? So I told him, I mean, I, I'd never driven anything like this before. So right out of the car, I told him what I thought about anti uh, dive suspension. And I presume he'd heard it from other people because he said, yeah, yeah we're, we're thinking about changing that. And, uh, so he said, well, okay, okay, all right. Well, this was just after Brian got hurt uh, at Star. And uh, so he said, well... Okay, well, we go to France next uh, next week, Rouen. How do you like to drive a Formula One car at Rouen? So I said, well, of course I'd like to drive your car at Rouen. Okay, he said, well, I'll tell you what, see you in the paddock on Thursday. We'll pay you 200 pounds plus expenses. Hmm. That's amazing. That's amazing how just compared so anyway, to all I the multi-million to... dollar contracts there are today, just how oh, oh. nonchalantly and easygoing... Discussions like that were back then. Yeah, well, I'll come on to that in just one moment. But let's we'll finish off with uh, with uh, Rouen, and uh, so then I actually had a caravan because the year that year I'd won the Monte Carlo Rally, and I went to Bessicar who made caravans up in the north somewhere, and I said, oh, I just won Monte Carlo Rally, and I quite like to have a caravan as my 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 personal sort of paddock place and, and even go on holiday and they said yeah okay we'll lend you one so they lent me a caravan uh, which I used to, to believe it or not I used to tow behind my porter ha, that's great uh, like 75 80 miles an hour on the freeways in, in Europe love it that's, that's fantastic <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so they lent me my, my caravan and then, so I turned up in my caravan in the paddock at Rouen on Thursday. And then uh, my big friend, the Belgian driver. Oh, anyway, uh, 
It'll come. I got so much up there, it slips around. Anyway, <laughs> he, he and I were the drivers of the two porters, and I qualified last. Okay. And then, uh, you know, that was all the weekend. Uh, uh, and then I woke up in the paddock on Sunday morning in my caravan, and it was pissing with rain. <sighs> and I thought, oh, how lovely. Because amongst the other things I've learned over the years, which nobody else could really notice, I adore driving in the rain. I mean, I, I'm not just good at it. I'm absolutely bloody good at it. But I like it. Yes, sure, I love it. sure. You have to if you're going to drive well in it. And so, uh, you know, we, we started the Britain, the Belgian Grand Prix. And I, and I started last and I finished fourth in wow. the rain. Oh, wow. <laughs> that's that's but, uh, but then we were talking just a month, and then of course I carried on with with John Cooper the rest of that year, and then at the end of the year, what happens at the end? Oh, the following year we started the following year, and then when we went to Nurburgring, Mario Andretti was driving a four-wheel drive Lotus ah, for the yeah. first time, and they were having all sorts of problems with it. And uh, and then for the race at Nürburgring, uh, I'd, I'd done pretty well because the Nürburgring, I'd already won six times at the Nürburgring. I'm the only living driver who ever did win six times. And I'm the only driver total, uh, who ever, only one of only six, who ever won, no, only one of ever, over, of four, who ever won six times at the Nürburgring. That's amazing. Book by Chris Nixon, Kings of the Ring. You ever seen it? Oh no, I have not. I, I, I but I should, shouldn't I? You absolutely should. Chris Nixon was a great writer, great journalist, and unfortunately, he wrote the book. Uh, I, I don't. You, I, I've got a copy, obviously, but I don't know. Twenty years ago, maybe more. And then he was sitting down one day to revise it, to you know, sort of revise it, bring it up to date. And he suddenly dropped dead and fell off his seat in his typewriter. Ah, dear. Okay. But, but, but the book is colossal. You should read it. Not just for me. Everybody, the only other people in there, by the way, one of the Germans who was back in the 30s, who won four times or more with Mercedes, uh, Sterling, who won uh, five or six times. This is Sterling oh, Moss. You're, you're Sterling Moss, yeah. yeah, yeah. And, and John Surtees, who won six times. Ah. But I believe, I believe one or two of those were on a bike. Okay, okay. So it's just Sterling, the other Mercedes driver and me, who won six times in a car. Are you talking about uh, Hans Hermann by any chance? No, 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 way before him. Okay, okay, okay. Um... No, no, Hans is local, and not even Stuck or his, his father either, even before that, okay. way back in like 1931 or 32 or something like that. I see. Okay. The name will come, the name will come by the time we finish talking, probably. <laughs> but you talked moments ago about not having $40 million salaries and that sort of thing. Oh, yeah, exactly, Ooh. yeah, yeah, yeah. Getting off the subject a little, but not really, because this is all still current. Uh, Netflix has been doing a series on Formula One racing. Yeah, Beyond the Grid. Whatever it's called. Yes. Have you have you watched any of it? Yes, I have. Yes. 
Oh, so have I. And I'm, I'm sort of, I, get, I don't even know where I am because my, my wife keeps trace of it all. Uh, originally, I said, I don't want to watch it. And then I said, yes, I will. Uh, and I've learned a lot about it. And then by the time I've seen, I don't know how many, how, how many series, how many sets, you know, how many series I've seen now. But I've been getting the feeling more and more as we go through it. It's getting more and more about us and them. Ah. Us being the drivers, them being the men with money, but particularly the team money bosses who direct or direct, speaking French halfway through, who direct that money, spend it as the them. Yeah, okay. Okay. That, that's the feeling I've been getting, and it's been increasing as we go through. And of course, until now, I would have been one of uh, us against them because I was a driver. But I have to say, with these idiotic, as uh, some of them are, idiotic pace te- uh, scales, that I am becoming more and more on the side of the them. <laughs> okay, all right. Who, who I believe, in many, many, many cases, are much more logical in their thoughts and in their do- doings than in the we, our us. Well, do certainly... Do you understand what I'm saying? Absolutely, and part of that, to a certain extent, has to be just how shockingly young the vast majority of drivers are these days. It, exactly, yeah. exactly. That, that, that certainly is. I mean, some, some, I, I was talking to somebody just the other day who was talking about, I can't remember which driver, saying, well, it, um, I think it was probably Colton Hurton, you know, the, the IndyCar driver. Oh, yes, yeah. I, 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 know, I know Colton well, yes. Do you? Well, I mean, it's bloody ridiculous. They won't give him a license. <laughs> so you've got some little squirt from Russia who's bringing the money with him who couldn't keep a fucking go-kart on the track who's got a Formula One license and Herta can't get one. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, that is just absolutely absurd. And I was reading somewhere the other day about her, I can't remember who, about someone being right at the top of the of his form and da, 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 da. and he's only 26 years old and I thought well 26 years old these days they're retired yeah yeah they're, well, they're retired multi-millionaires by the time they get to 26 I didn't even drive in my first ever my first ever competition until I was 26 years old yeah yeah because there weren't any right or I couldn't afford them because I couldn't afford a car and I couldn't afford money to go and buy one and I couldn't afford money to go and rent one if indeed that even happened back then. I have no idea. And then now, I mean, but before the kids could walk, they're driving um, go-karts. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Four or five years old. Um, but um, I, I'm certainly enjoying the conversation and I'd love to hear a bit more about your Formula One career and indeed getting into endurance racing. So if, as long as you're happy to share, I'm happy to listen. Well, endurance racing, that was automatic. Once I'd driven the Porsche, 
you know, the first couple was, well, try it, we'll, can't give you a contract, but we'll see how it goes. After, within the first week, break or two, Hushka uh, was coming to me, so Sean Hanside, saying, uh, Vic, have you ever thought about racing? <laughs> said, Hushka, I've thought about nothing else since I was about 11 <laughs> years old. Ah, he said, that's good, because what we'll start doing is we'll start putting you into the racing team a, a little at a time. And, of course, back then, this was ideal for me, because back then, uh, Porsche racing was simply two liter, little two-liter cars. Oh, yeah, 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 uh, like the 904 you know, sorry, and what? things like that. Exactly, you know, 906, 910. So I wasn't, or 906, so it wasn't like jumping into a 907 or anything, a 917, I mean. Yeah. And so they, they started me putting into, started putting me into cars like that as a uh, second driver. I think the first one I went with, Lucien Bianchi, got it. Yeah. Oh yeah, Lucien. Bianchi, oh sure, sure, sure. He was my great, great friend. We were great friends. We used to share a room together when we were in Canada. We shared a, a, a little uh, hut together because it was on a on a sort of holiday estate. And, and he was a terrific guy. I used to love him. And, and then, you know, what was really tragic, you probably don't even know this, but, you know, he was killed. And he had a gorgeous wife and three gorgeous little girls. Mm. And his wife was a horse riding expert. I mean, she was good. She was an international standard ah. at horse riding. And a few months after Luciang died, she got killed. Oh, dear. Jeez. With her, with her horse leaving, leaving the kids behind. Fortunately, he had a brother who had also been in racing, but he wasn't as good as Lucien, whose name I forget, it'll come as well, I suppose. And he was able to take over the girls and look after them. But I mean, that was absolutely tragic. Oh, yeah. But, I mean, again, that's what I asked you about earlier. I mean, this was this was an era in racing that again it's 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 glorified and romanticized oh, yeah. so much but it was it was deadly it was extremely deadly i believe it was in formula 1 in that area you had a it was one in three drivers wouldn't last absolutely. the season oh yeah absolutely we all knew that when we left home on sunday morning we might not come back again yeah yeah and there is that there's that inherent bravado that was almost necessary it's like well that's if you make mistakes, but gosh, I mean, of course, also mechanical failures and so many other things that can contribute that are just outside of your control. Yeah, well, outside of my control. Exactly right, we, yeah. We, we sort of got there, we never got there. When, when my, my last race with John Cooper, well, actually it wasn't his car, because Colin Crabb had by then come along and bought it as a, well, it was running as a private team. Um, but my last race in the, the Cooper was at Novogrin, mm. and I'd, I'd qualified very well. I was, I think, fifth on the grid, believe it or not, simply because I knew the ring better than most people. <laughs> and, uh, and then I made a lousy start. Uh, Mario got by me. He had never, he was behind because they'd had trouble with this four-wheel drive Lotus. Jean-Pierre Beltoise was behind me, but he passed me on the straight to, on the start. And then 
about two thirds of the way around the Nurburgring on the first on the first step, there's a little bridge called Brunton, uh, which which literally means little bridge, and mm. it was a little humpback bridge. Doesn't exist anymore. But it, prior to that, just a little way back up the road from that, there's a long, very fast right-hander over a crest, completely blind. But that doesn't matter. You know where you're going. Which we, we used to take at probably, I don't know, 100, 110 miles an hour in a Formula One car. And Mario went out, was in front of me. Uh, and then Beltois and me. Mario went off. Because I said they'd had all sorts of trouble with getting the car set up properly for him. Sure. He crashed. One of his wheels came bounding back across the road. Beltois uh, squeezed between it and the edge of the road. And I tried to do the same thing, but by the time I got there, the wheel had done another bounce, and I hit it with my left front wheel, and just did a lovely cartwheel over the over the trees to land upside down in the trees. Jeez, didn't do much damage. I mean, I mean, I was a little bit upset and frightened to say the least, because I could hear petrol dripping out the back of the car. Oh gosh, yeah, uh, sure. And we all we all had these new. Uh, you know, push button electric fire extinguisher on the board. And I'm reaching upside down, reaching around the back of the uh, steering wheel trying to find mine. And I couldn't, uh, fortunately, because I was upside down and disoriented, I couldn't find the button. And eventually, all the masters were standing around looking like they were waiting for it to go boom and catch fire. And eventually Mario had stopped way down the road, got out, took his helmet off and came back to where I was. And he stood aside, cooks kicking ass and getting the marshals to turn the car over and get me out. And as they did that, I looked down at the back, I could see the fire extinguisher had fallen off. Oh, and, the, and the two wires from the push button in the steering gun behind my steering column were sort of waving around in the breeze, oh touching gosh. each other, wait, just waiting for me to press the button. <laughs> That's amazing. What what year was that? Do you remember? 68. Wow. Yes. Unbelievable. Yeah. Yeah. So you've given me some fabulous Formula One stories. If you could tell me a bit about racing at Le Mans in the Porsches, I would love that. About one story. One story sounds lovely. I deeply appreciate it. Okay. You know, I was always in love with the 917. I mean, I went to Le Mans earlier. Uh, at one point, I'll go back to an early race. 1968, I suppose it was. I think. You'll have to look it up. I was, I was with Gerhard Mitter. Okay. And well, Hanstein had put us together. Why, I have no idea, because we hated each other's guts. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, literally, both of us. Sure. It just didn't work. And then Bushko put us together in a 908 coupe for Le Mans. Wow. And, uh, I mean, well, he drove, I drove, and eventually, uh, still daylight on Saturday, one of us, I think it was him, didn't matter, came into the pits with a broken alternator. And you weren't allowed to change the alternator. You were allowed to repair it, but not change it. So the mechanics uh, took the alternator off, dropped it into a huge bucket of cold water to cool it off. And then once it was cold, took it out, repaired it, put it back on the car, 
and they were just about to finish off the last screw when one of the very sharp-eyed commissaires in the pit said, oh, and I saw, one moment, plunged his hand into the cold water bucket and came out with the broken alternator. Oh, wow. Because it was a new one sitting in the bucket that had gone onto the car. Wow. <laughs> but, but that was neither the fault of either Gerhard or me. Uh, but anyway, we got this quality well, But then another, my best Le Mans story was Porsche. Well, there were two, actually. One when we, I, like, I elected to drive, I was the only one, 1969. I elected to drive the 917, knowing that it was a handful, it wandered all over the road, and it was bloody difficult to drive. Porsche started, well, who do you want as a co-driver? And they came out with a couple of names, and then Richard Atwood, I said, yeah, Richard's okay. He's not going to go and go out and rushing around proving he's quick or anything like that. Uh, he's a good, solid guy. Yeah, okay, we'll go with Richard Atwood. What I later learned from Richard, years later, was that they never actually told him that they wanted him to drive that 917 with me. Because that early 917, uh, I mean, nobody wanted to drive it, except me. Absolutely nobody. Okay, it was an it was undri- hundred. Oh, it was more than a handful. It was an undrivable monster. <laughs> Rolf Stommelin and I were both down to drive them that year. He was the official test driver, test car, and I kept on and on at bottom PX saying, I want one too. And they kept saying, well, you know, it's going to break. You don't want one of those. Have a 908 like everybody else. I said, no, no, no. Eventually, they said, all right, you, you're going to have one. But we'll tell you, it's going to break after six hours. So, that would. they didn't tell me until they tell him it was for the 917. Uh-huh. So that one, and especially that 917. So the first time he got in the car, he found himself going down the street with this monster engine about a foot behind his ears, bellowing out in his eardrums. Sure. Despite everything I told him, uh, he was obviously totally surprised the first time he tried the brakes, first time he tried to go around a corner. I mean, the car was an absolute nightmare. <laughs> uh, but, but I liked it because I felt I'm going to tame this bloody nightmare. Sure, it and was I a did. challenge. And I did. Um, and we managed to drive it for 21 hours instead of the six that Pierre and Cohen decided. And when it did break, it was nothing like they expected. All that had happened was that um, oil and train, so the, 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 uh, the bell housing cracked. Ah. Allow, allowing oil into the clutch. I see. And that, you know, which was nothing at all like they'd imagined. And we were leading by 80 miles. <laughs> 18 Eight miles. Unbelievable. Yeah, with three hours to go. So that was the first story. Then the following year, we had the the, the, the proper 917, the real, you know, the first streamlined ones. John Wire chose to stick with the first, with the original one, the short tail one. Uh, I chose to go with, with Pieck. I was always with Pieck. He and I got on very well together. Uh, we worked well together. So for that year, I said, well, you know, 
Ferry, I was the only one who called him Ferry as well as the Ferdinand. Said, you know, Ferry, I'm, I'm convinced that the, the long tail is a good, fast car, safe car. All I need is a five litre engine. And he said, okay, you can have a 917 with a five litre engine, no problem. And so I did. Mm. And in, in practice, in qualifying, I was the only guy, the only car to go around at an average speed of over 150 miles an hour, 150. Yeah, and and, and that uh, uh, that's that's because Le Mans is such car. an incredible place, and uh, and yeah, in that absolutely. era, in that yeah. era to go that quickly down the Mulsanne and yeah. uh, the narrow roads, uh, yeah, just uh, through the Mulsanne kink, I was oh, the first sure. one to discover. I, I I was convinced it was flat, and then I was out. Oh, I guess first practice, and I come there, I lift off, and I do it again the next time. And I'm saying to myself, "Come on, off you know the damn thing's flat." <laughs> and so I'm talking to myself all the way down the straight. The next, this is before the chicanes, of course. And I'm talking to my way, talking to myself all the way down the straight. You know, it's flat. It's flat. Christ, they keep me foot on the floor. So I did. And I went through the kink absolutely flat out, beautiful. And I came out the other side saying to myself, what in the world world's the problem? That was easy. <laughs> uh, and in fact, it was easy because what I was then able to analyze, nobody, I, no, nobody had bothered before, not me nor the engineers, was by lifting off the lifting off the touch before I got into the kink, I upset the balance of the car. Oh sure. Or at least I changed it. And so when I went back onto the throttle, I no longer had the the, the balance I had previous to it. When I stayed on the throttle, the car was beautifully balanced, no problem. It just stuck to the road like glue. Mm. And then I found out later on in the race, I could go through the kink at night in the rain, set out. In the rain, no less. Jeez. In the rain, at night. Wow. That's an incredible story. Well, um, Vic Alford. Robin, I'm going to have to go, I'm afraid. Thank you so Look, much for, he, for chatting. It was just an absolute okay. wonderful to hear <laughs> all your stories. Thank you. Have a nice day, Robin. Talk to you soon. All the best. Bye. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening. Please take a moment to review us on iTunes or on whatever platform you get our podcasts. Please leave comments on the episode of your choice by going to funwithcars.com. As always, I can be reached at feedback at funwithcars.com. Tweet us at fun underscore with underscore cars. And check out our Facebook page at facebook.com slash fwcars. I'm Robin Warner. Goodbye. <laughs>